Lord, this morning as we come to Your Word, we come carefully aware of the authority of the Scriptures, aware that You have even stated that Your Word is even greater than Your name. Oh, God. Hard for us to even comprehend that. Hmm. And so, Lord, as we come to Your Word, Lord, we... We have come this morning with the intent of not trying to manipulate your word to fit our theology, but rather to allow your word to speak to us today. And I just pray, O oh God, that, that your word would flow this morning in a way that would bring life and light and healing and freedom and deliverance and blessing. Thank you, God. Lord, may we not only be hearers, but doers of Your Word this morning. We pray that from Your Word, faith would come. Faith that comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word. Hallelujah. And so we, we are here as Samuels this morning that would say to us, I am saying it for myself. We are all saying it together. Speak, Lord, for Your servant hears. We have come to hear. We've come to receive. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Take your Bibles. Turn to Colossians chapter 2. This morning, Colossians chapter 2. We're going to kind of read it as we kind of walk through it this morning, starting in verse 8. And so I'm not going to read the portion at the beginning, because we're going to kind of walk through it as we as we do that today. Uh, as you as you know, I I, I have been um, reading from the New Living Translation, which is a little bit different th- from the NIV. Um, and but we will also make reference to NIV this morning. And uh, um, I I like the Book of Colossians. It's one of these small books. Um, Colossae was a city in Phrygia. <laughs> you have no idea where Phrygia is, do you? It's, it's really the west coast of Turkey. And um, the capital of that area was Ephesus. Um, and within 100 miles of Ephesus, there, in a radius around Ephesus, there were... There were three major cities. Laodicea is one of them, Hierapolis, and then Colossae, three cities. The church in Colossae began as an outgrowth of Paul's three-year ministry at Ephesus. It's recorded in Acts chapter 19, probably about A.D. 52 to 55 is when Paul was in Ephesus. A man by the name of Epaphras, who was a native of Colossae, more than likely a convert through Paul's ministry, pioneers the church in Colossae. We see that in chapter 1 and verse 7. It seems that they met in Philemon's home. Philemon chapter 2 reveals that. Um, And now, Paul is now a prisoner in Rome. And Epaphras visits Paul. And out of that, the result of that visit is this prison epistle or this prison letter that is sent 
uh, to Colossae, a group of people that he never met, but a group of people, of course, that was almost like a grandchild of, of Paul's ministry. And uh, obviously, Epaphras and Paul talked about some issues that were going on in the city of Colossae, in the church there. And, and so Paul deals with some of this. In this letter, Paul combats Gnosticism, a highly legalistic, ritualistic, doctrinal heresy that had invaded the church not only here but in many places. Very complex theology. Uh, a, they, they claimed a superior relationship to God, knowledge of God, uh, insisted, among other things, that there was a host of beings, uh, angelic beings, who served as a bridge to God, uh, and through these these angelic beings there was a fullness of knowledge uh, that all of these beings were worthy of worship and that Christ was prominent or was a dominant member amongst them. And so Paul responds to this distortion of truth and he, and he says that Jesus Christ is not prominent, he is preeminent. That Jesus Christ is not dominant, He has all dominion. That Jesus Christ is not primary, but is incomparable. And so, and so, very clear distinction between what Paul was teaching and, and what the Gnostics were teaching. And we, we, we see it here, Colossians chapter 2, verse 8, don't let anyone capture you with empty philosophies, high-sounding nonsense that come from human thinking and from spiritual powers of this world rather than from Christ. For in Christ lives all the fullness of God in a human body. So you are also complete through your union with Christ alone, who is the head over every ruler and every authority. And then uh, back chapter 1, we see uh, him also speaking about this, Christ is the, is, is the visible image of the invisible God. He existed before anything was created and is supreme over all creation. For through Him, God created everything in the, heaven, in, in the heavenly realms and on earth. He made the things we can see and the things we can't see, such as thrones, kingdoms, rulers, and authorities in the unseen world. Everything was created through Him and for Him. He existed before anything else and He, and he holds all creation together. Christ is the head of the church, which is His body. He is the beginning, supreme over all, who rise from the dead. So He is first in everything. Uh, for God in all His fullness was pleased to live in Christ, and through Him, God reconciled everything to Himself. He made peace with everything in heaven and on earth by means of Christ's blood on the cross. So, so you know, Paul made a very, very clear, very strong statement here. Um, the distinction between true Christianity and Gnosticism. And so, Paul deals with that there. Now, so, along with with, with, with many other traditions and philosophies and sophisticated arguments and rituals that the Gnostics had, circumcision was worn as a badge of spiritual superiority, as was true in many parts of the Christian realm. This was not, no new teaching. And so in verses 11, 12, we see Paul dealing with that. When you came to Christ, you were circumcised, but not by a physical procedure. Christ performed a spiritual cir circumcision the cutting away of your sinful nature. And so he smashes this whole issue of saying that circumcision was a clear badge of spiritual superiority. And he makes clear that the New Testament sign or marker 
is literally water baptism. And so Paul, Paul deals with this again that, that starts in Acts 15 when the whole council of the church comes together and deals with the issue of circumcision. Um, uh, he deals with it in Romans chapter 2 when he says it's circumcision is of the heart and, 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 and Gentiles are, are as well uh, circumcised as well as Jews. Gentiles who, are, who have never experienced natural circumcision are circumcised because of their, of their cutting away of, 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 of the flesh of the heart. And um, he goes on in Romans chapter 4 to speak about Abraham, that Abraham was accepted of God before circumcision occurred. And then 1 Corinthians 7, he said circumcision uh, is, is not the issue here. If, if you've already been circumcised, don't reverse that. But, but if, if you aren't circumcised, you don't have to be. Okay, so he deals with that uh, in, in, in 1 Corinthians 7. And of course, there are ex- exceptions to that where he, he makes a, a, a statement concerning Timothy later on. Galatians chapter... Galatians chapter um, uh, five. Uh, now this is all. This is this is really just preliminary. So you know, hang hang in there with me, huh? Okay, you you still awake? All right. Galatians chapter five, verses two to four. It says, "Listen, I Paul tell you this: if you are counting on circumcision to make you right with God, then Christ will be of no benefit to you." I'll say it again. If you're trying to find favor with God by being circumcised, you must obey every regulation in the whole law of Moses. If you are trying to, to, to make yourselves right with God by keeping the law, you have been cut off from Christ. You have fallen away from God's grace. So Paul, Paul is saying, hey, there's a clear distinction here between salvation by works and salvation by grace. And he says, we reject salvation by works. You are not saved because you are such a good boy or girl. You are saved because of faith in Jesus Christ. I'm very grateful for that. Me too. Okay, so that's that's all that's all background here to Colossians chapter two. Now, let's read verses thirteen and fifteen. You were dead because of your sins and because your sinful nature was not yet cut away. Then God made you alive with Christ, for He forgave all your sins. He forgave all your sins. He canceled the record of the charges against us and took it away by nailing it to the cross. In this way, He disarmed the spiritual rulers and authorities. He shamed them publicly by His victory over them on the cross. Okay. Um, NIV, um, most of you have that. When you were dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the written code with its regulations that was against us and that stood opposed to us. He took it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Now, Paul says that you were dead because of your sin. What was dead? Ephesians 2 talks about the same thing. You were dead in trespasses and sin, verse 8, for by grace you're saved through faith, that not of yourself, the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should, so, should, should, should boast. So we ask the question, what was, what, what is dead? You're dead in trespasses and sins. What died? It's interesting. Romans, uh, Romans chapter 7, Paul deals with this, and, and, and Romans is kind of one of those older, uh, latter theological statements by Paul. Book of Romans, one of the later books. Uh, verse 9, at one time, listen to Paul, at one time I lived 
without understanding the law. But when I learned the command not to covet, uh, for instance, the power of sin came to life and I died. Okay? Now, this may not be Pastor Jim's theology. Pastor Jim is here. He can clear, he can straighten this out after I'm long gone. Okay, so, uh, so here we are. Um, um, my understanding biblically is that every baby that's born is born triune, body, soul, and spirit is alive when babies are born. Okay? So they are whole, they're complete. That's why we don't, that's why we don't try to get babies into heaven somehow through baptism. Does that make sense? Okay? Baptism is a believer's experience. Uh, death to life, burial to resurrection, huh? That's what baptism pictures. Alright? We don't have to do that to babies. We don't have to somehow, somehow get them through the back door of heaven because they are triune. Their body, soul, and spirit, they're saved. Paul says here, Romans 7, he says, at one point I was alive, but then the law came, which means his understanding of, of right and wrong came, and what happened? He said, I died. So we ask the question, what died? His body died? No. You know, are, are we all in the process of death? Yes. You know, that's part of the curse. But no, his body did not die. And his soul didn't die. Mind, emotions, and will. That didn't die either. Very active. Lots of people all over the world today. Very much alive. Body and soul. Mind, emotions, and will. Very active. But their spirit has died. Okay. So when we talk about death, when we talk about people who are dead in trespasses and sins, we're not talking about body or soul. We're talking about spirit. We're talking about the spirit is dead. So, when you are born again, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Don't marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. So, so born again experience is not, is not a mind trip. It's not a body experience. It's a spirit resurrection. Okay? It's not something that you can just kind of theologize yourself into, in other words. It's not some new teaching that we simply teach people and, begin, and they begin to think differently. No, no. Christianity is transformation, death to life. Spirit that was dead now comes back to life. Are you with me on that? Okay, so, so, so that's what Paul is dealing with here. And he was saying that we all died. All, what? Have sinned. And come short of the glory of God. Okay, we all died. We all died. We all, we all faced the reality of sin early on in life and said yes to sin and no to God. That's the result of sin. Now, so, God is just. The perfect demands of the law made us guilty before God. Alright? Justice cried out for, for ultimate penalty. The wages of sin is what? Death. Ultimate death. John 3, verse 18. You know, you know, John 3, 16. For God so loved the world, gave His only begotten Son. Alright? John 3, 18 makes clear to us that if we believe, we are not condemned. But if we don't believe, we are what? We are condemned already because we have not believed in the, in the name of the only begotten Son of God. So, there's, there's this, there's this sense, condemned already. Judgment has already occurred. It's not like, well, you know, if I get to the pearly gates, I may be able to talk my way into this thing. No, 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 no. Judgment has already happened. You are already guilty before God. 
You know, so so none of us are going to waltz into the presence of God because somehow we're able to talk our way into this thing because because judgment has already occurred. And so uh, the wages of sin is death. But but the good news here in Colossians two is that God through Christ has liberated us. God through the the, the bond has been canceled. The debt has been paid. The record has been cleared even though we had signed the confession. Guilty. We'd signed the confession. Alright? Um, we were already condemned. Alright? It, it's a done deal. It's all wrapped up. It's all finished. We're guilty before God. But Christ has intervened on our behalf and He has liberated. That's, that's what the Gospel is all about. That's, that's the good news, right? The good news is that Jesus Christ has come to set us free from the bondage and the shame. Not just the bondage, but the shame of sin. I'll come back to this in a minute. But the reality is, is that you, many wonderful Christians, many wonderful Christians, serve God faithfully for many years, believe that God has forgiven them of their sin, still carry the shame of their sin. Every once in a while, it just overwhelms them. It just comes pouring in on their life. The reality of the shame of what I did. How many can relate to that? Huh? Yeah. yeah. Okay. You know? And it may be it may be it may be something that hardly anybody, maybe nobody else in the world knows. Alright? Or maybe very Maybe lots of people know, but 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 you become overwhelmed by the shame of your sin, and 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 this morning, praise God, this morning prophetically, some of you are going to get free from the shame. Okay, all right. <laughs> Hallelujah. For too long. For too long. It has besieged you. It has overtaken you. You you believe fully in the forgiveness of Christ, but the shame of that has come back and just beat you up over and over and over again. And a part of the canceling of your debt, the part of this of this of of, of the bondage being broken, the record being cleared, is 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 the restoring to wholeness in your life where no longer you you live under the shame, the, the cloud of what what you did. Let's 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 look at Isaiah 53. We we all know it well, but let's just let's just look at it this morning. Verse one Who has believed our message, to whom has the Lord revealed his powerful arm? My servant grew up in the Lord's presence like a tender green shoot, like a root in dry ground. There was nothing beautiful or majestic about his appearance. Nothing to attract us to him. Isn't that interesting? He was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows acquainted with deepest grief. We turned our backs on him and looked the other way. He was despised. We did not care. Yet it was our weaknesses he carried. It was our sorrows that weighed him down. 
We thought his troubles were a punishment from God, a punishment for his own sins, but he was pierced for our rebellion, crushed for our sins. He was beaten so we could be whole. He was whipped so we could be healed. All of us like sheep have strayed away. We have left God's path to follow our own. Yet God, the Lord, laid on Him the sin of us all. He was oppressed and treated harshly, yet He never said a word. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as sheep is, and, and as a sheep is silent before the shearers, He did not open His mouth unjustly condemned. He was led away. No one cared that He died without descendants, that His life was cut short in midstream, but He was struck down for the rebellion of My people. He had done no wrong and had never deceived anyone, but He was buried like a criminal. He was put in a rich man's grave, but it was the Lord's good plan to crush Him and to cause Him grief. Wow. So, when Jesus is on the cross, and I, I don't pronounce this correctly, Eli, Eli, Lama, Samachthani, when, when Jesus said that on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It is the fulfillment of this. The Lord crushed him with pleasure. Why? Beyond comprehension. Any of us who have children. Beyond comprehension. He crushed him with pleasure because he had you in mind. <laughs> that, that's the gospel. Huh? That's the good news. <laughs> Jesus was crushed so you could be healed. So you could not only be free from the chains of sin, but the shame of sin. Hallelujah. Isn't it glorious? Isn't it wonderful? No wonder Paul proclaims in Galatians 6, As for me, may I never boast about anything except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Praise God. 1 Peter chapter 1 tells us that the ransom that was paid was not with silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. The precious blood. And, and, and at what level? At what level did forgiveness come? At what level was the price paid? Colossians 2 makes clear that is, it is all our sin. All of it. All of it. Micah chapter 7, verse 9. I love this. This is, this is Old Testament. But, it, but, it, but it, depicts, it depicts what God does with our sin. You will have compassion on us trampling our sins under your feet. Hallelujah! Trampling our sins under your feet and you will throw them into the depths of the sea. Hallelujah! Psalm chapter, Psalm 103, verse 12. He has removed our sins from us. No, no, no. Not, not from Him. From us! He has removed our sins from us as far as the east it's from the west. You go north, you'll, you'll eventually go south. You go east, you will never go west. It is from eternity to eternity. God has removed your sin from you. Hallelujah. This is not, this is not something that you have to live with. I speak this on your behalf. 
I speak this on my behalf this morning. You do not have to live under the shame of past sin. It is under the blood of Jesus. Colossians 2 verse 14 is a very unique verse in Scripture. It is not spoken in this way anywhere else in the New Testament. It's beautiful, it's powerful, significant. He took our sin away, nailing it to the cross. All translations are consistent. He took it away. Took it away. Nailing it. <laughs> Anybody got a little shame this morning? Nailing it to the cross long before you sin. There's two sides to this coin. One side is the grace and the mercy of God, compassion, forgiveness, cleansing. The other side is the weight of sin. How, how great our sin is. How much it costs God. We, we, we don't sin easily because God's grace is sufficient. We don't, we don't just say, oh yeah, 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 I'll ask forgiveness, then I'll go back and I'll, I'll sin again and, and then, then it really doesn't make a difference because the grace of God is there. No, 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 no. no. That's, that's, that's a distorted view of forgiveness because you see the price was so great. <laughs> he paid so much so that you could be clean. Will you then with impunity return to darkness because of the grace of God? How foolish to think that we can play with God like that. We can't. That does not say that if you sin again, there is no forgiveness. Of course there is. But it's not a matter of playing with God. He has taken your sin and He has nailed it to the cross. Nailed it to the cross. I'm going to do something this morning prophetically. And as I do this prophetically this morning, if you have sinned this morning, that prophetic, you've already asked forgiveness. You've already gone through the process of cleansing in your life. But this morning, you are here today. I've never done this in my life. This is brand new territory, folks, so this isn't, you know, something, you know. Okay. This isn't a part of Ogren's act. In other words, okay. But I'm going to do something this morning prophetically, and as I do this, these slips of paper say, my sin is nailed to the cross of Jesus. Hallelujah. And as I nail these pieces of paper to this little piece of wood this morning, if you this morning prophetically want to claim that your sin is nailed to the cross and the shame is no more.
if that is in your heart this morning, as I nail these pieces of paper, you stand as an expression of saying my sin. I want you to hear it. I want you to hear it this morning. Because this is not... This is not... Uh, you need to hear it. You need to hear it because it will keep you from sin. You need to hear it because it will break the power of shame. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. No more. No more shame. No more Satan buffeting you over something you did at 14 years of age or 18 years of age or 21 years of age or 35 years of age. No more. If you have humbly come to the cross and you have humbly received His forgiveness, no more shame. So if this is for you, you stand as I nail these sins to the cross. Hallelujah! 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 In the name of Jesus, we nail it to the cross. Hallelujah! The shame is gone! forget it. Never forget it. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. You can be seated. Hallelujah. I'm not done. We could be done. That was good enough. I'm not quite done. The result of all of this is absolute freedom. You know, you like that uh, uh, Dave Ramsey, you know, uh, with a, you know, he gets people on the radio and, and they've just gotten out of debt. Okay, one, two, three, what? I'm free! Are you ready? You ready? We're going to say that about sin this morning. You ready? One, two, three. Isn't that great? I'm free. Free. Not just kind of free. I'm free. And so Paul goes on here and says that he's disarmed spiritual rulers and authorities. You know, we, we wrestle not against flesh and blood. This is a spiritual battle. He disarmed them. He stripped them. As the old English word is spoiled them. It's a military term. It means to take the weapons away. It means to dishonor them. It means to take their authority away. It means to take their armor away. It means to take all of their power away from them. 
Satan's greatest tool in your life and in my life is deception. The cross has removed all legal right and authority. The war is over. It's won. The enemy has laid down his weapons before the Lord Jesus Christ. The prisoner of war camp gate is now open. On March 5, 1974, 2nd Lieutenant Hiro Onodo surrendered 29 years after the war was over. December 26, 1944, he and a group of soldiers, Japanese soldiers, were put on Lubang Island in the Philippines. They were all killed except for four. There were four holdouts. And they were all waiting for orders from one of their commanders that they were free to go. <laughs> there was a young man by the name of Norio Suzuki, a college dropout student in Japan, and he told his friends, I am going to go to the Philippines and find hero. And they all, of course, laughed at him and said, yeah, right. <laughs> it's not going to happen. He did. He found him. They became close friends. He won his friendship. And after hearing his story, he went back to Japan. Mr. Suzuki, young, this young man, went back to Japan and found one of the old majors who was now long retired, one of Hiro's majors, Major Tanajaki, and he took him with him to Japan and stood before this man and said, you are free to go home. The war is over. And Hiro believed him and wept and returned home <laughs> 27 years after the war had been won. And many of us have been living on the island holding out <laughs> when the war was long won. <laughs> we didn't have to be there. The shame was there. The pain was there. Unfortunately, for many of us, Unnecessarily. The scripture says in Colossians 2 that he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Do not underestimate the power of the cross. A public spectacle. The whole universe saw it. An overwhelming, uncontested victory over the power of Satan. General Patton, during World War II, welcomed a group of young soldiers who, was just, who had just arrived in Europe to fight the war. And he said, welcome to Europe and the war. 
I'm sure that some high-ranking jerk, he did not use that word, in the States, told you the secret to winning the war is to be willing to die for your country. Not so. It is to make sure that the enemy dies for his country. (laughs) The enemy has been defeated. The victory was won at the cross. That was the that was the victory that Christ has brought us into. And there is a there's a there's an interesting word here, especially we see it in the NIV and many other translations that use the word triumph because there's a there's a clear distinction, and that that is a correct word in the Greek. There's a clear distinction between triumph and victory in the in the context of the Roman army. Victory always occurred on the battlefield, often at great price. The triumph was never on the battlefield. It comes right out of the Roman Empire. It is a national celebration put on by Rome when a general won an unusual victory on the field. The Senate would vote to him a triumph. Not many occurred. In fact, probably you would only see one in your whole lifetime. It was like the 4th of July, the end of World War II, the Super Bowl, the New Year's all wrapped up together. Um, it was a citizen's holiday. Everybody had the day off. It was this big ticker, ticker tape, tape parade you know, that went down through Rome. At the triumph, it was up to the general to prove the extent of his victory. And so what would happen? He would ride a chariot of 24 karat gold, and which, by the way, speaks of the resurrection because, because the resurrection was the triumph. The cross was the victory, but the resurrection was the triumph. Because here we would see that the general riding in this golden chariot led by two white horses would be accompanied by his family, his close associates, and his troops. But behind them, stripped of uniforms. I want you to see this in your mind's eye. Stripped of uniforms and in, and, and in chains, were all the vanquished kings and officers and troops that were disgraced and humiliated and proven defeated. And Jesus Christ did that. He did that at the resurrection. He led us in triumph. In fact, 2 Corinthians 2, thanks be unto God who always leads us in triumph. And that's exactly what Jesus has done. He has put him to an open shame. They have been stripped of all authority and power behind behind the troops, okay? Behind the troops that the vanquished troops would be would be cages that would be rolling behind them with all of the animals that would be indigenous to the area where the victory occurred. So the lions or whatever that were indigenous to that area would come behind them. And do you know what? We have Satan the vanquished followed by all of his demon realms with their heads down follow the chariot of Jesus. The resurrection of Jesus Christ that says 
you no longer have any authority over my church, the body of Christ. Hallelujah! No wonder the shame is gone. No wonder it's gone. You no longer have to live under the authority of Satan. The only authority that you live under when you live under... When you live under his authority, and you can as a Christian live under his authority, but if you do that, it's because you've given it to him, not because it's rightfully his. And we're going to do something as we close this morning. The worship team can come now. We're going to do something as we close this morning. We're going to partake of communion. And this morning, uh, I hope today it will be more powerful for you than it's ever been before. I'm going to ask the people that are going to help us serve to come. We're going to do it differently this morning. We're going we're gonna to have uh, the people that will serve you are simply going to be standing here with communion. And as you come and receive communion this morning, it is a, you are making a statement by walking forward and partake, partaking of communion. You are, you are making a statement concerning the victory of Jesus Christ. You are making a statement concerning your shame and, and your past sin. You are making a statement concerning the triumph of Christ that Jesus Christ has won the absolute victory and he's proven himself totally, totally triumphant. And we're going to start this morning uh, just uh, introspective, quiet, and we're going to end with celebration because the triumph was always celebration. It wasn't quiet. It wasn't introspective. It was powerful. The cross is quiet, introspective. We're all hushed at the cross. But we're all exulting at the empty tomb. Amen? Amen. And this is both victory and triumph this morning. And 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 we're gonna have our people just kind of spread out. You can come to anybody you, you want to. If you want them to pray for you, they'll pray for you. But you don't have to have that this morning. This is just simply receiving by the grace of God the full work of redemption this morning. Gone is the guilt. Gone are the chains. Gone is the shame. And you are entering into the victory and the triumph that's found in the cross and the resurrection of Jesus. How many are grateful today? Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Free. I'm free. (laughs) Hallelujah.